Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome for part two of the Feast for Crows, Scraps and Scrolls, our companion podcast, the History of Westeros's Bala Rabidis. I'm sure you are listening along on the Sunday streams. Welcome, hello. Come to the Isle. It's a very sunny place. I'm happy to report I'm talking to you from, yes, the very sunny England. Thank you, England, for your blue skies. I am Sir Buckley, your head green person here on the aisle. I will be taking you through our second part of Feast of Crows today. Four chapters, we're into our usual format now, we're really getting going. And I'm not sure when you'll be listening to this. We've had some delays from last week with everything going on. But whenever you're listening, we thank you all the same. And a special thank you, as always, to our patrons, especially for those many of you sent very, very kind, supportive messages last week about delaying the episodes to this week and, and everything else. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart, everyone in message, everyone who's a patron anyway. I'd especially like to say thank you to KM, as always, for her particular support. Now, I could do the usual of reminding you that the Storm's End episode is oncoming and everything else is going on. I would rather just direct your attention to the one podcast we did release last week. It was seven minutes long, maybe. It was the Black Lives Matter Resources podcast, in which basically explained why we had no episodes last week, why we had the delay. I briefly went through a list, just outlined a list that I copied and pasted with permission from Girls Can Can. And thank you again for uh, formulating that and everyone who obviously contributed the resources listed therein. I would say I advise, instead, I demand that you will pause this, going this to that first, because there are much more important things than a Feast for Crows going on currently in our society and on our planet. So, yeah, big stuff still going on. The movement is not dying. We're not going to let it go. A lot of things still need to be fixed. Progress has been made, for sure, but not enough. Always more, always more. Do not stop asking. Do not stop demanding. Well done to all of you out there. And I also realised, shamefully, I've been lax the last couple of podcasts in thanking our tireless key workers, still out there, healthcare professionals, everyone else still fighting the virus. My apologies, we have not forgotten you. I know how much work you are still doing protecting us, even as people are maybe a bit too fast to forget that. Everyone still working hard, we salute you here on the aisle. I hope, perhaps, if you are listening to this, I can provide some comfort or some repayment for your hard work and your sacrifices. With that, let's get on today, shall we? I hope you've gone back, listened to that podcast. Please do before we go any further. But going today, like I say, we're into our normal format today, not just in terms of recording, but also in terms of what we are covering, the reading experience, because we're back with people we know. Yeah, people we've actually seen before, POVs we've actually had before, and places that are familiar to us. Not like last week at all. That was a rather large enigma, an outlier there, which we will come across again. There's plenty more of that to come, but not so much this week. Let me quickly tell you what chapters we have coming. We begin with Cersei 1, we go on to Brienne 1, Sam 1, and Aya 1. So right away, we know all these people. This is a big turnaround. We're getting that thing that we wanted last week, the follow-up to Tyrion's plotline. We're going to see, where has Aya gone? We had some hints, but we really want to know. What's going up on the wall? That's our one glimpse. That's good. And, wow, okay, we get Brienne's opening quest. I'm going to enjoy talking about that one. So there's a lot of aftermath in that. What has happened now that John is Lord Commander? What is going to happen now that we find Tywin is dead? Okay, we don't find that specifically out today, but it all begins. So there's follow-up from Storm of Swords, but there's also the opening of new storylines. And it actually comes in pairs because we've got the beginning of two journeys in Sam and Brienne going 
not particularly similar directions at all or similar motivations but two journeys nonetheless and we've got two cities that we're going to settle into one king's landing which we already know but it's a very different king's landing and we find bravos which we're going to be in for this book and the next book not very often but we are for both aya and sam and who else, who knows who else going forward possibly more so that's very important obviously a lot of setup for going forward because we've also got two new povs are very exciting i spoke about it last week so i won't repeat myself too much but Brienne and Cersei, the two big guns of this book, personally, I find. You could throw Jamie in there, but I think when most people think of Feast for Crows, they think of Brienne and they think of Cersei, especially Cersei, just because she's so out there and very hard to ignore. So we're really looking forward to getting going with those plot lines. Not to say the Sam's isn't important. That's wonderful. We spoke about that a lot last week. And we get, well, we have to adjust to a very different Aya, both as a character and in how often we get to see her and what's going on. But we'll get to that as we go. The only other thing I want to talk about here in the intro is something didn't get to last week, and it's that this idea that Feast for Crows, and I think we'll see a bit of this today, is very much the bill being paid from Storm of Swords. Well, from the first three books entirely, from the War of the Five Kings. We're going to see it with the Faith walking to the city. We're going to see it in the crown and the court kind of being hollowed out step by step. It's not as simple as just seeing Devastated Village number 50. We've seen plenty of that already with Aya and Jamie and various other people. Now we're really seeing everything that's been built up, everything that Tywin did, mainly, in the centre of the kingdoms. That's all got to be paid back and we're going to see that both out on the road with Brienne and also in the court, like I say, because this is very, very different to what we're used to. But I think probably the best way is just to get down to it and actually have a look at these chapters. So let's begin, yes I know you've been waiting, finally for Cersei 1. Okay, let's just take a moment everybody shall we, to just appreciate that we are here, that I can say Cersei 1. I maintain that out of the first three books, the person you would want most as a POV would be Cersei. I really do. Maybe not so much in, oh yeah, at the end of Game of Thrones as well, but definitely in A Clash for Kings. I, I still say that's the real one I would have loved to see through her viewpoint. All the interactions with Tyrion and the Blackwater and Marcella being taken away and Joffrey being awful, everything. Not that we would turn down Storm of Swords either, but we are here. We actually get to be in the mind of this woman who has been the antagonist so far. I spoke last week about Cersei being very much the focus of this book. Like I say, we're all desperate for her. But she's also leading the way for the plot that most people want to know about, like I also, again, mentioned last week. Tyrion was left on a cliffhanger in Storm. So we need to know the aftermath. This, oh, I've got these Iron Islands, I've got a Sunspear to deal with. What, what's happened to Tyrion? It's happened to King's Landing. I've spent so much time being invested there. Please pay it off, George. And George, he accepts, he gives us that here today. That was the big event of the South in the ending of that book. The Red Wedding, sure, okay, but that was like halfway through the book and yes lady stoneheart came back but that's kind of secret for now this is the big thing this is the ripple that's going to go out all the way through this book and dance also so we need to see it we need to see that beginning george denied us he managed to deny us for three whole chapters but now relents and not only relents but gives it to us in a cersei type package wow i can't imagine what a feeling it must have been to see that chapter title for the first time, for first-time readers. The beginning of Storm, we spoke a lot about the weighty decision and hard road it was to make Jamie into a POV, how difficult it was considering all the build-up of Jamie as a classic Disney villain. 
And that was with someone who had barely been on the page for an entire book and a half. He'd been in the River Run dungeons for the majority of the series at that point. Whereas Cersei has been the prominent antagonist for us so far. Peter Baelish, still the largest, still the worst, in my opinion, and I'm right. The others, obviously, are still there. Okay, Euron is coming, but Cersei is the one we know best. She's the one who's been on the most pages. She's the one we've had to hear from the most. She is just there in our face. She is the one we've hated the most. At least now that Joffrey is gone. Okay, fair enough. Joffrey might have taken that title. And he would be the only rival. If we were going to pick characters who were like, how, how could they possibly be turned into a POV? Okay, I agree. Joffrey would be a harder character to turn into a POV. But Cersei is probably next in line. Obviously, George did enjoy the experience with Jaime and wanted to do it again. Even if Cersei does go down a completely different route to her twin. This is not comparable arcs of these two, in my opinion. In fairness, because we spent so much time with her, it also means we've had some more sympathy and understanding drummed up. Not a lot, but a bit. More so than we have with Jamie, anyway. We've seen her be a mother. We know of her abusive marriage. We know it's not as clean-cut as this is just a bad person for no reason. She's not a Joffrey. And Joffrey had some reasons. Not as many as Cersei. But we've also seen her condemn Tyrion through a mock trial. Although, we'll say, it's understandable why why she thought it was him. Valencar theory or no Valencar theory. We've seen her be abusive to Sansa. We know she killed Robert and obviously played a huge, gigantic part in Ned's fall and death. Plus, like, a thousand other instances with lesser characters of having people beaten or whipped or killed or whatever. She's not a nice person. We know that. She's been the most consistent evil so far. And now we get to share this new world that we find ourselves in with her. So, that's amazing. It's a fascinating point of view, isn't it? It's not one we've really had before. A woman ascending to power. The power essentially. We've already had Ned and Tyrion trying to control King's Landing. Okay, we kind of had a break from that in Storm because we didn't have Tywin, but now we see it through Cersei's eyes and she has the power. Everything she's wanted, kind of, which we're going to discuss in a minute because that's how she opens this book. And for all the jokes and hilarity of how badly Cersei messes it up, to put that aside, there is also incredibly strong writing within this arc about the great unbalance of gender power in this world and Cersei trying to repay that debt and her interactions with her sexuality, with those, again, with those power dynamics. And, well, we're going to have a lot of fun discussing this, I think, as we go through these 10 chapters, I believe she gets. Yeah, it's pretty dominating. And there's many, many other unfairnesses that she has faced in her time. So we will address those as we go. To me, Cersei is stepping into the gap left by Catelyn's death and her departure as a POV. They have always been mirror images of each other since the beginning. They are the two matriarchs of our two families, Lannisters versus Starks. That's a pretty central column to our plot so far. Both of them have been willing to do whatever it takes to protect their children. They are mothers. Okay, we've seen it more physically on Catelyn's side, but, this, but Cersei has not exactly been lax in that area either. They've both been mothers to kings, and now we get to see Cersei step outside that role and really get hungry for her own power. She almost brushes Tommen aside in this book and starts using him as anyone else would, even if she can't quite grasp that. Yeah, I'm going to look forward to talking about Tommen a lot. Poor old Tommen in these chapters. So I think this is one of the more famous arcs in Song of Ice and Fire. Like I said, it's going to be a delight to read through and discuss. But we also have the second character, the background, the setting of this chapter, because this is a huge change in King's Landing and in the royal ruling court. It's easily the biggest change since Robert's Rebellion. Yes, we've already had two actual kings die, but I don't think this is a comparison, if I'm honest. I think Tywin's death is far more impactful than either Robert or Joffrey. We get almost an entirely new small council, 
which is almost entirely made up of basically rookies, some long-standing members of the court that we've just gotten used to on their way out. The Kingsguard is very different as well. The Tyrells will bloom and then kind of individually wither or leave. And that's without mentioning the faith coming to the city and changing the whole dynamic. The entire city, really, and the stability of the crown grows weaker and weaker, all under Cersei's direction. Not all because of Cersei, but quite a lot of it. She's hungered for this her whole life. She is convinced that she alone can do it and, unfortunately, utterly messes it up in almost every way. You could say she has essentially won the battle that she's always been fighting, only to find victory is oh so bitter. Quite a bit, like Robert. So not only do we find out that Cersei is bad at management, as we've always suspected she would be, but also discover entirely new depths to her depravity and evil. It's easy to forget how we didn't have the whole story at this point. Okay, yeah, we knew she was bad, but we're going to find out more and more. There's the stuff of Kyburn, the manipulation of certain people, and how willing she is to just sacrifice people, treat them as things. There's definite sociopathic behaviour and several other types going on here. There's the memories of past evils that we didn't even know of if she relates that to us as well. And she does get worse in this book, as if we could have imagined such a thing. And it all ends up with comeuppance. Who could have guessed? We'll come to that late, much later. What is Cersei's biggest role in this book? She is what Tywin Lannister left the world. She is the product of his approach to life that we quickly mentioned last week. This is the rotting lion, the legacy. She is the product of his approach to life. She is the rotting lion. It's Tywin's legacy against the brilliance that we've already seen and will see against Ned's. This is what evil gets you, basically. Cersei is merely a golden crow, picking off the leftovers and doing nothing with them except make it all worse because she wants to preen in the mirror. And the opening page confirms it for us with her dream. Here's the first quote. She dreamt she sat the Iron Throne, high above them all. Not exactly news to us, but we're beginning with Cersei's goal. Power. She's been denied her agency, denied what she thinks is deserved, her whole life. So, logically, she still wants it. She's still power hungry. Remember, she still believes Tywin alive at this point, so it's not just opportunity knocking. It's the undercurrent. This is always what she's thinking of. This is her motivation for Robert, for Ned, for Tyrion, and still now, even if she's not going to uh, try and usurp Tywin anytime soon. In waking life, she allows her sons to sit the actual throne, but she still wants the power for herself because it's always being denied. And the second clause of that quote is crucial. She doesn't want to rule to effect change or to have people love her, specifically. She just wants to be above them all. She believes herself better. Again, setting that prevailing theme of the book is the highborn being high above the lowborn and, again, comeuppance coming from that. That ties in nicely to the other thing that she can't let go of in Feast. Yes, there's power, there's also Tyrion. In much the same way that we'll find out Tyrion can't let go of Cersei in Dance, Cersei fixates and has constant paranoia about her younger brother all the way throughout this book. We've been present for so much of their conflict through Clash and Storm, but obviously everything took a huge step forward with Joffrey's death. And now we're about to get Tywin on top of that as well and the fact that Tyrion escapes, so you can kind of understand the paranoia. The amount of things that Cersei will attribute to Tyrion throughout this book is a bit of a sign of Cersei's mental state that we'd, we should probably get used to now. In this dream, she thinks of the courtiers as brightly coloured mice, but she is always the lion. Again, it's, that's the imagery of her always believing herself better, so she is a class above. It's funny how Cersei's concern in this dream is very similar to Tyrion's, being laughed at and mocked by the assembled court. So we can see some of Tywin's teachings in there. You must never be laughed at. You must always be a cut above and always suspected. And, well, we know why Tywin fought that way. So we can see that 
being passed on to his next generation. And in that same way, there's lots of foreshadowing to her walk of shame because she dreams of being nude in front of everyone and getting cuts from the throne, etc., etc. So that's a bit of that's a dark link to what's going to happen later on. But there's also the larger symbolism of it being the Iron Throne that cuts her because we know that there's the idea of if the throne cuts you, it rejects you. We saw it with Joffrey, so now Cersei is dreaming it. Cersei, we do know, is going to be un unworthy of her position. So dream's over, Cersei wakes, and who's she being woken by? Sunel. <sighs> Poor Sunel. We meet the first of Cersei's many, many victims in this book. She really does pile them up, especially at the end, and the majority of them aren't exactly getting clean deaths. Makes it pretty tough on a reread to, well, we know what's going to happen to Sunel and others. Not something we really want to dwell on. And consider, just going forward, the majority of these victims are going to be people on Cersei's side. It's not like she's going out and capturing soldiers from a different army and then doing bad things. These are people, in theory, that are hurt. So she really does kind of smash the floor beneath her own feet during this book. Now, to be fair, Cersei wakes up in a room full of shadowed men. And that is terrifying for anyone. She actually handles it pretty well. And especially for a woman, a woman in this world, of all worlds. They could have, you know, just waited outside. I don't, I'm not sure why not. Just send Sunel in first, not that just surround Cersei in the middle of the night. What do you think she's going to react like? But she channels the line, she shows her strength straight off. And just consider the history of this castle, of the Red Keep. What has been done in this place by shadowed men at night? Yeah, Cersei does have reason to be like, what the hell are these guys doing here? But I do really like her mistaking Osmond for Jamie because he is essentially going to be a thin copy for Cersei throughout this book. She's a bit disoriented, she doesn't really know what's going on. We don't actually get the dialogue from these people telling her about Tywin. We just hear mutters about a crossbow, etc. So now readers are really getting excited. That's a cooler way to do it than just have someone tell Cersei outright. Because people have been waiting for this a long, long time. And we really want to find out, is it, is it true? Did it really happen? Did Tywin actually die? Can we wrap our minds around that? Yes, please. For rereaders, we know we are going to find out in a second. So we get to be smug about knowing what Cersei doesn't. Which, to be honest, we'll have quite a lot through this book. We know at this moment her confidence is misplaced. And like I said earlier, now we're finally getting what we all wanted. Even if you do like the Ironborn and Dornish plots, I think we agree. We really want to see this scene that's coming up. Quick note before Cersei heads off. She sips at some water with lemon and spits it out. I wonder if that's a nod to her growing dependence on wine. We're going to focus on that a lot. Or perhaps a nod to just show she is the opposite to Sansa. Because we know Sansa loves a bit of lemon. Okay, now she's up, she's getting dressed, she knows something has happened. She needs to go and find out what it is. I still like that there's no there's no one moment, at least not yet, of realisation or that the dialogue didn't come clear to us, like I mentioned. It's slow and it's incremental. She keeps fighting against it for the moment because, again, this, this, is, this would just be unbelievable to her. So that feels more natural. I like the way George does that. Next up, we get to Cersei's third obsession of this book, the Tyrells. We're already pretty well versed in this from Storm, but again, we're now seeing it from Cersei's actual POV. And it's another marker of that paranoia and kind of her only thinking as far as the notes on her face. We're going to see that a lot in all the decisions she comes up. She really can't uh, expand her mental scope, unfortunately. She attributes nearly everything in this book to one Tyrell or another. If it's not Tyrion, it's a Tyrell normally, or sometimes both. I think she hates them because in many ways it's what the Lannisters should have been. The beautiful queen, the young, skilled knight, or maybe what they were at one point. They even have a cripple in a family. I'm sure in Cersei's mind, Willis and Tyrion are pretty much just the same thing. 
The Lannisters, they technically had all that, but they hated it. They did not enjoy it. So when she sees these people come up with everything that they should have had, and they're all smiley and loving to each other, yeah, that rubs her the wrong way. Just as an aside, because we don't see them in this chapter, but I really look forward to the Tyrell arc in this book. They become all powerful, then Cersei seems to win and get rid of all of them, only for them to kind of spring back near immediately. And yet we still have the varnish come off of it, the Ironborn raids, the arrest of Marjorie, what, what, what the hell is up with Loras, we don't know. So yeah, I look forward to getting to that. Cersei seems to have gained some kind of acceptance by the time she comes to the Tower of the Hand, but she's still keeping her head up high, acting queenly. She's also mentally scheming inside, thinking of how to secure herself and her son. That's fair, can't knock her for that. She's been swept aside or pushed around most of her life, so why wouldn't it happen now? Well, mainly because, ironically, the one who did the majority of sweeping and pushing has just died in the toilet. We have this quote there. She was a daughter of the rock, a lion. Okay, so she's keeping that mentality that this is what she's drawing her strength from, that, that symbology, that imagery of the lion still being king of the jungle, basically. But she sees an opening and she's going to take it. If Tyrion really is dead, if this unimaginable thing has actually happened, okay, how can she take advantage? How can she find a positive? Well, basically because there's no one to tell her no this time. This is the chance for the establishment of power. This is the time for strength. Suddenly there's no husband and no father. Hello. They're the two main influences for all women in Westeros. So, and she's free of them. So what can she do? What can she get away with? She needs that feeling to offset the less than strong and embarrassing way they actually find Tywin. Because if this kind of thing can happen to him, the person who she would have thought of as the strongest in the world, what can happen to her? What can happen to her children? Next quote. The command came easily to her. My father had to steal in his voice as well. So you're already trying on new shoes. Command isn't new for her, but it feels different now. It's better. We've gone up a level. Mentally, she's already in a different place. She's a step closer to that dream of the Iron Throne that we had at the beginning. Basically, she's there. Compare that to the Stark children when they have news or they witness Ned's death. Okay, that's not entirely fair because Cersei isn't a child, but still, I wouldn't say this is a completely normal reaction for being presented with your father's body. She even compares herself to Catelyn's reaction in a, in a moment, and obviously they are very, very different things, even if that's son compared to father still. This cursed tower has too many steps. She had half a mind to tear it down. Some foreshadowing doesn't get paid off in this book, but some does, and this is one of them. It's interesting that they find the hidden passage so easy when Tyrion failed with his own search and clash. Perhaps he just didn't close it on the way out. He probably wasn't in quite a rush. Or perhaps Jamie put two and two together. Either way, I bet Varys is pissed that all these years he's kept them hidden. One time he shows someone around, they leave the door open, all his tunnels get found. That is annoying. And we get a few instances, not just here, but throughout the chapter of Cersei calls the guard fools, and she wants the moth to fly into the flame. And it's all just feeding into this Cersei above everyone idea. She really has no empathy, no sympathy for anyone else. There is the rest of the world and there's Cersei. She doesn't really care about one of those categories. But aside from that, here we go. Confirmation. Tywin is dead. Here he is. He's lying right there. After such a long wait, we find out it really was all true. So, oh, wow. Big moment. This huge figure that brought so much misery to the kingdom, the Starks, the Riverlands, his own family, Tysha, of course, he is now just a corpse on a bed, same as anyone else, as dead as his thousands of victims, thousands upon thousands. But he doesn't look the same to Cersei. The power isn't as obvious anymore. So she's facing a type of existential crisis because she's seeing this constant in her life, utterly defeated. 
But worst of all is him not being treated above everyone else anymore. That's what she jumps on. It's the presentation of him. It's him having the arrow still in his body and everything like that. That's what bothers her. We get a lot about Cersei being paranoid here. Note, at the moment, she still suspects Stannis, which is fitting given how Renly and Courtney Penrose died. But she'll focus on him less and less as we get through this book. But in, in this moment, I think paranoia is absolutely forgivable because, one, there's a secret passageway that the killer assumedly came out of. So, hey, I live in this big, huge castle with who knows what. I already know there's some tunnels that nobody supposedly knows about that, that could go anywhere. So suddenly nothing seems safe. It is a fair reaction. Next quote. They sent for me last. The realisation made her almost too angry for words. Though another common trend we're going to see again and again, how little respect Cersei actually gets around the place in comparison to what she sometimes tricks herself into. She'll say it's because they're out to get her, that she's underestimated, that it's the plotting of Marjorie or someone. She'll never address the fact that it's actually because she has zero people skills. Less than zero. She's in minus people skills. Which we probably see best with how she talks to Kyburn, a man who seemingly exists purely to help her in this book at the moment. And the fact that she really doesn't deserve any respect. She'll never address that fact. And we're going to see the result of that when everything just completely crumbles very, very quickly when she is imprisoned. That's the reason, because no one actually likes her. They aren't bonded to her in any way. Quick aside here, Cersei mentions Maester Balabar, Maester Franken, everyone. Hands up if you already lost count of the maesters in this book. There's loads. It's almost as if George really wants to get across their reach and potential influence. Hmm. Spe- so speaking of maesters, let's talk about the meeting of Cersei and Kyburn. You may suffice, she decided. If you fail me, you will lose more than a chain, I promise you. Yeah, you can almost see the lightning outside the window when these two come together. It's the meeting of two evil minds and two respective enablers. Cersei allows Kyburn to do all these terrible, terrible things. Kyburn, in turn, allows Cersei to keep her power, at least for a little while. Although I will admit, I really enjoy reading this relationship, and it's going to be a constant throughout the book, for the most part, anyway. As mentioned, look at how Cersei speaks to and treats Kyburn here. Right, fair enough, she doesn't really know him at the moment, but she she simply lacks the basic ideals of catching more flies with honey. She does not get that. Being Tywin's daughter, she believes this is the only way to gain any respect. For Kyburn's end, I personally believe his only loyalty is knowing that Cersei will give him what he wants and he knows how easily he can manipulate her, as he does throughout this book. I'm still of the opinion, eventually, her usefulness will end for him and he'll repay her for each and every one of these little comments. There is actually quite a lot of Kyburn in this book, so it's a momentous meeting. Lots of people's destinies just changed in this moment. A lot of lives, unfortunately, got a lot shorter and are going to have a lot more pain involved. Important he's in this book precisely. He's the dark side of the Maesters. What else are we going to find in that dark side as we go forward with this, this plot that we know nothing of just yet? Speaking of tough to read passages, Porsche. Yes, she is here. She is in this scene. Forgotten, uncared for, and eventually dumped unceremoniously. Ugh, no, very tough to read, given her end. Of course, Cersei doesn't care about any of that in the slightest. She's just worried about optics and has no answer for what she's actually doing there. But Kyburn proves his worth straight away. He steps up. He proves himself the PR guy, the one that Cersei really needs, and that he would probably be a better ruler himself than Cersei. He comes up with the suggestion of uh, Tywin questioning her. Yes, yeah, this is the relationship we're going to see going forward. Shay. Her name was Shay. They had last spoken the night before the Dwarf's trial by combat, after that smiling Dornish snake offered to champion him. Shay had been asking about some jewels Tyrion had given her, and certain promises Cersei might have made. 
take what comfort we can in Shay at least having her name remembered, if only for this brief moment. This quote does provide some context to what we spoke of a lot about at the close of Storm, about her motivations, especially during the trial, and it seems we were right, our guesses were right. There was some deal cooked up between Cersei and Shay, some promises that Cersei made to perhaps tease the details of Shay's confession out of her, or those extracurriculars that we spoke about. Unfortunately, we don't get quite enough detail here, but it seems we were on the right track. Something along those lines did happen. Something I'd forgot, that Cersei takes the chain, the, the chain of the Hand of the King. Do we see that again? Does that come back? Someone point that out to me. I get, does she just give it to her next Hand of the King? I can't remember. But what I would like is to see Tyrion's reaction if he ever comes across that chain again, because that's obviously tied into a whole bunch of emotions for him. So that would be interesting. Next up is Jamie. He comes out of the, the tunnel and this interaction, this whole interaction is just great. Kevin's also there for good measure. He's the only one having like a normal reaction. Meanwhile, the arguments are already flowing between the twins and that's only going to continue as we go. Remember, Jamie is in a very raw place emotionally at this point. He'd already made the grand decision to secede from Cersei and Tywin in the last book, but then came Tyrion's tease about Moonboy, etc. and what Cersei's been up to. That's bad enough. That's going to occupy enough of Jamie's mind. But on top of that, at this moment, is copious guilt when he, he's obviously realised at this point what Tyrion, and by extension, Jamie himself, has actually done, what, what part he played in his father's death. So that's really weighing on him at this moment. And yeah, just this whole interaction really just set the tone for these two going forward in the, I don't know how many chapters they get together, but we get a fair few in the first half of the book. And obviously that comes full circle with Cersei's letter at the end. So I look forward to uh, seeing that. Only now does Cersei realise Varys is not there. But she speaks of him for the first time. I guess the spiders are always forgotten, aren't they? Personally, I find Varys much missed in this book. I'm a big fan of reading his scenes. For first-time readers, we've no idea what happened to him. When it's revealed Tyrion has escaped, we might assume Varys has gone with him, or, or who knows. And we're going to have to wait a, a real long time to actually see him back on the page. Too long. For me. I guess for now I will just rely on the hope that one day we get a conversation between Varys and Kyburn because if a conversation between Varys and Kevin is as brilliant as it is in the Dance of Dragons epilogue just imagine that one. Kyburn and Varys yes please sign me up. We end this chapter with the order to kill the guards instead of question or use them in any way and that is the great example of what I've been talking about of Cersei's thinking process and just not not thinking basically just not going further than the very first hurdle first things he thinks of okay we'll do that that's not good news for king's landing but it is what we can expect going forward so good fairly short intro to cersei but brilliant yes we're looking forward to the rest and i believe there is one next week with cersei too for now we're opening another arc with brienne one let's move on to brienne one we open with a quote. I am looking for a maid of three and ten. A lot of characters have their repeated mantras, and here comes Brienne's. This is her driving force throughout the book, especially in these early chapters, even if she does stray further from the cause later on. Or rather, events drag her away. Like Cersei, she's starting off with her goal, with what's important to her. As we discussed in Storm, we know this means a bunch to Brienne in terms of finding Jaime's honour, in terms of repaying Catelyn, and because she genuinely wants to protect Sansa, someone she's never met, has no, she's not related to, isn't going to benefit Brienne in any particular way. She, there's not really a war to even win. She just wants to protect the innocent girl because Brienne's the best, basically. There aren't many pure quests or arc that we'll find in this book or any of the other ones. Like I say, she isn't out for gain. 
not protecting your own family. This isn't going to change anything for anyone except Sansa. That's what Brienne's focus is. Sansa, the person. With so many people in this book see Sansa, or in this series rather, see Sansa as as a pawn, as a figure, as something to use. Not Brienne. She wants to go and save her for, for Sansa. And why? Because it's the right thing to do. That is Brienne in a nutshell. Unfortunately, right from the off, we know this is going to be a failed task, or at least a long one. We know that Aya has left Westeros, or at the very least the Riverlands. Brienne thinks she's dead anyway. And we know that Sansa is completely hidden up in the Eyrie under an assumed name. So at this point, Brienne is at least walking in the right direction for the Eyrie and the Vale, but she seems like she's going to the Riverlands. So this is very much the beginning of the arc, walking through the Riverlands and the Crownlands almost aimlessly okay she has a big aim but she doesn't know how to get there so i think most agree the first part of brienne's arc is the weaker side of the two halves we won't hit those big story moments until the end or it's like or until later anyway although when we get there you know we really do get there there are mental storylines left right and center every brienne chapter is a, a doozy the further on we go but we definitely do have a bit of a lull early on as we mentioned last week some of that is because a first-time reader naturally seeks out what's next in the plot because they don't know so that they're hungry for it as I said before, Feast and Brienne especially get better on reread, likely because we can focus more on Brienne herself having full knowledge of the plot. I think the point of this chapter is to firstly show there's danger on the road of all shapes and sizes, and also just to get us used to being in such a nice person's mind. We don't get a grown character who's like this at all. The closest you can get is probably Ned, and he's a very different character, a lot different for him to think about. So this is really an enigma and an enjoyable one for us. Don't sleep on the fact that Cersei and Brienne's opening chapters are next to each other, by the way, because it's just a comparison of who they are as people. It could not be more opposite. And also bear in mind, in that same vein, we don't often get to be in a knight's mind for POV, at least not so far. Jon has all the same skills, but he isn't a knight. Jaime opens to us only when he loses his skill and ability to be a knight, so it's not quite the same. Davos, yes, technically, but he's not what you immediately think of in terms of classic knight. And Bran, unfortunately, can only dream. Aerys Oakheart will come later, and it's going to be quite the opposite in terms of sticking to O's, even though he's been charged with protecting a young girl, just like Brienne. And we also have Barristan to come, who obviously is Mr. Knight, so that's to come, but Brienne's first. It's poignant that Brienne keeps referring to a maid when she is technically one also, although we know she's really the warrior at heart. She's not here to represent the maid, she's here to represent the warrior and this noble knight, again, the one that we really don't get much of. The problem for rereaders is that we know Brienne is ultimately going to fail in her quest and knowing that she's going to go through hell just to reach that failure it's the storyline i probably want to know about the most in winds of winter what happens with brienne and pod and jamie and lady stoneheart and all of that can't start talking about that because that's a big rabbit hole but let's at least focus on one strand of it what happens after the immediate of jamie and stoneheart assuming brienne survives that interaction does she continue with her searching will be she will she still be charged with finding sansa or aya because they know aya's alive Will she actually get there to one of them? Will she actually find Aya or Sansa? And remember, I believe Aya will return to the Riverlands, so maybe. I still like to champion Daenerys too, but that might be wishful thinking. I just I just think they'd be good to go with Brienne and Daenerys. To focus on Sansa, who is you know, the focus of this chapter, it would be wonderful for both of them to actually find each other. So maybe we should just stick with that. Sansa, that would be an amazing POV for Sansa to actually kind of get to know Brienne because she'd be in the best position to compare Brienne and Sandor, the two different, very, very different of knighthood, non-knighthood. And I think we can agree Sansa needs a song in living form, which is what Brienne is. She is actually what 
the songs promise. So that hits on Sansa's growth of looking beneath the top layer because Brienne doesn't look it, but she is that song. In the early pages, we can see a bit of Brienne's naivety. It's worth checking, Rosby, sure, but if Sansa really was being spirited along to Dusk and Day and Beyond, it's obvious she wouldn't have got far without concealing her hair or her face or even her presence if possible. She's trying to outrun the crown, in theory, and this is the town next door. So any kidnapper or escapee worth his boots is going to be better at hiding her than that. So it sets the tone is that Brienne is really going to have a tough time if this is her search method. But again, gotta check, what, else, what other options does she have? Asking for Sansa seems basic, but what else is she going to do? She doesn't have the cunning or plotting strengths to really work out a good plan at this point. So she just gets on with the task in the most direct way possible. Have you seen her? Have you seen her? This is what I've got. I need to find her. A couple of quick quotes here that I, I think really sell who Brienne is and what this arc is going to be going forward. First is this. Words were easy. Deeds were hard. Yeah, that, that could be the symbol for Brienne's arc here. Very, very fitting for her themes. She struggles with O's and how to keep them, etc, etc, and which ones you should even swear to in the first place. But in the end, we'll discover it's the deeds she does, no matter the difficulty, that matter. Second one is this. But elsewhere is a big place. That's just a good line. I really like that. And we're going to get a sense of that during Aya's chapter later when we meet Bravos for the first time. So I think one of people's uh, favourite parts of this chapter and Brienne's whole arc in this book is the inclusion of Podrick because... He's a fan favourite and we get a little bit more of him than we have before in Storm. Really only got hints when he's with Tyrion and we get our first little hints about him following her early on here. It's pretty impressive that Pod is able to track and keep up without meeting trouble given his age and the fact he's on his own. And he's riding a piebald mare, we'll find out later. Now I wonder, Tyrion was given a piebald mare by Varys, I believe. So did Pod take his old master's horse here and, uh, and go chasing off after him with it? Could be. Next quote. She found herself wondering whether Jamie had given her this task as some cruel jape. So even early on, even on like day one, essentially, Brienne is already having this distrust immediately manifest with double-guessing Jamie here. Even though she's going to come to defend him to herself and others later on, she talks herself out of Jamie doing that pretty quickly. But her life on the road is always one of second-guessing of her purpose, of her chance of success, of her compatriots, all of that. All her arc is just second-guessing. Next quote. She had promised Lady Catelyn that she would bring back her daughters, and no promise was as solemn as one sworn to the dead. So more good lines very early on in this chapter, and more tying into which hoes we should be obeying, etc. Problem here, obviously, Catelyn is now both alive and dead. So Brienne's kind of double-lobed, and that's a really nice snippet of the ending of Brienne's arc. Now, we're three pages in at this point, and it's the second time she's been mistaken for a man by whoever she's talking to. It doesn't seem to bother her that much. She probably gets this kind of thing every day. But I think this is another reason for having this chapter because in a moment when she meets Illitha the Penniless and Sir Creighton, etc, etc, there's just the underlying sexism and they're not just sat there shouting sexist things in her face, but it's just the underlying foundation of how they relate to women when they when they ride up on the other side and uh, they say there's two swords, not three, and stuff like that because they're just so used to discounting women and putting them in these pigeonholed roles that they, they, even with the evidence right there in front of her, someone like Brienne, it doesn't get through to them. So I think that's the other point of this chapter, is just this is what Brienne's had her whole life, and she has to put up with it. So let's get on to Illitha the Penniless and Sir Creighton Longborough. Many say that Brienne's chapters are similar to Duncan Egg, and that makes sense. There's a lot of parallels. And now we're getting to meet two hedge knights to hammer that similarity in. And don't forget, Pod is lingering just behind the corner to become 
Britain's essential squire to really make the comparison strong. That's without talking about the obvious descendants thing in terms of Dunk and Brienne. I really like that comparison. So we always said about distrust being a big deal for Brienne as we go, especially when we get to Nimble Dick Crab, etc. going forward. That's all still to come. And it makes the quest a lonely place for her. But we'll also find out the specific reasons for such an approach, aside from just good sense. It also keeps us guessing because we really don't know who is trustworthy and who is not. We'd guess that these first two are fine, and they're quite chivalrous, and they're better than most. They don't seem too bad, do they? But who knows? We never know. There's an underlying tension in this whole chapter because where where is George trying to misdirect us? Is it, okay, so Sadrick, he looks nasty. Let's keep an eye on him. But then we never know because Sir Illifer might suddenly come out and try and rob Brienne or anything like that. We just don't know. That's what the road is. Constant danger, constant double thinking. And again, something that Brienne just always has to put up with. And sometimes those choices work, sometimes they do not. I think that really hits home for us when Brienne can't go to sleep even after her watch because you can never be too careful as a loner, as someone in the current Riverlands and the Crownlands, and especially as a woman. Even with these two who do seem quite nice and probably won't do anything, but she's not taking a chance. I just mentioned Sir Shadrick, which I'm not happy about having to say. He also comes along in this chapter, and he seems a lot more shady than Elifer and Creighton. But again, Brienne always has to choose. But we'll come back to him when he appears. Brienne is right about needing the bravery to interact with two people such as these, because this is really just level one. She's going to come up against much, much, much worse as she goes. And we get a few cool things from talking to these two. There's the, uh, not just in this scene, but as the chapter goes, the Blackwater is talked about again and again in a romantic, kind of glorious way, when we know that's not how it was. It was not romantic or glorious in the slightest. So is this just a knight who was at the back where the fighting wasn't so bad, uh, so they can talk about this like this? Or was it his way of coping with the actual horribleness? He'd rather glorify and misremember it. Or, as is suggested later on, was he even there at all? Again, who knows? It's fitting to meet two men such as these early on, because broken men are going to be such a theme in Brienne's arc and of the whole book. She's already been warned about them once, just here. And these two aren't broken, but they are drift, just going from battle to battle and seeing what life they can scrounge from this situation. They could have been very easily broken men. Let's talk about swords and shields a little bit because there's kind of a few little mini points we can make about both. First is this quote, a sword is only as good as the man who wields it. So this is going to come up again in our next chapter with Sam and John. Right here we can look at the quote two ways. The first is obvious in terms of skill but we can also see a message that a sword can only do good if it has a good person behind it. Otherwise it can commit all sorts of evil. Luckily Brienne is just about the goodest person we'll ever meet so she can do all sorts of wonderful things with her sword as we go through this book. And a lot of people have talked about the importance there's Eddard Stark's sword doing this good out in the world. Eddard Stark still has this legacy. Tywin, not so much. On the shield side of things, we have this little conversation about Brienne carrying a Lofston shield. And, well, that's not too greatly received. And Brienne's obviously ignorant. She doesn't know what they're talking about here. So, okay, fair enough. But the Lostons, they are not too great on protecting children, so we can see why she's getting called out for it, given her quest. There's also a mention of Renly's sword, that Brienne took it when Renly died, and lost it to the bloody mummers. I had completely forgotten about that, so I wonder if, if that's going to show up someday. I doubt it, but it would be cool. And while we're talking about Renly, Brienne is believed, eventually, about not being Renly's killer. She has that accusation thrown at her, yet again. Yeah, she swears her oath, and uh, apparently that's good enough, and they just kind of let it go. So that's two for two when combined with Loras forgiving her as well. And that is really big. 
with Rianne's progression. This is a new part of her life. The Rennie stuff is always going to weigh her down, but being relieved even slightly of that pressure is huge for her soul, basically. So as we move forward with this pair, yes, we find they are still decent men. They don't attack her in the night or anything like that. In fairness, Brienne does meet her fair share of good people throughout this story, and that's important because we need to see she is fighting for something, that they still exist. It's important for her, it's important for us, that Tywin's destruction wasn't complete. He didn't just wipe out all the good people. It's not entirely misery and doom and gloom. And Aya had some of that when she was going around to the Brotherhood, and Brienne is going to get it here in this book as well. The next thing we meet coming along is the Sparrows, heading into the city, and we think they are led by who will become the High Sparrow, that Cersei's going to have some interesting interactions later on. It's fitting that Cersei's eventual downfall, politically and physically, is first discovered by the woman who is part of her downfall in love as well, and it will agree. It's also important we see this building in the Riverlands and Crownlands, rather than just them all appearing in King's Landing all of a sudden in some random chapter. This is the build-up, that's what George is so good at in you know, providing that foundation. And also links in with later, as it's Brienne who hears the broken man speech, and really, why are all these sparrows and holy men but the broken men and women of the War of the Five Kings and of the Faith. Next up after that, it's the meeting of the merchant and Sir Shadrick. Shadrick. Yeah, I'm not going to enjoy saying that. I'm glad he doesn't last too long. We spoke of beginning and ending links last week, and here we have another uh, less detailed one, because Sir Shadrick <laughs> is going to turn up right at the end of this book in Sansa's last chapter. And that's why he's so creepy, because he actually succeeds. He does find Sansa. He does what Brienne sets out to do. And he's now in a perfect position to do something. We don't know what yet, but it's a good guess that he's going to try and kidnap Sansa slash Elaine. So, guess, yay for disrupting Littlefinger's plan. Huge nay for poor Sansa. Shadrick doesn't seem like the most honourable of people. We do not want him interacting with Sansa too much. No, please. I hope that doesn't happen. So, who knows how that's all going to come off. Definitely one of the more interesting things we're looking for in the winds of winter. Just a, a quick thought of that. Would Sir Shadrick sell Sansa straight to the Queen now that Varys isn't around? Because he mentions this bounty that Varys has put out. He's the one with the gold. I think we can probably just say he's going to sell to whoever has the money. But don't forget, that is all still to come. We don't know the ending of that. There's no real hints. And yeah, like I say, I'm just waiting for that. Now this bounty that Varys put out, obviously that was done before everything went up the spout with Tyrion. So I wonder if somehow, somehow, if Varys did still get to Sansa first, would he stash her, maybe as a potential bride for Aegon, although Ariane might be more useful for the current climate, or would he still sell on to Cersei or, or someone else? Or, again, who knows. Finally, we come to the, the inn and the close of this chapter, and first off we get this review of Jamie's fighting skills that Brienne remembers from their short-lived duel, and it's interesting to see Jamie through the lens of someone who really knows, not only that she's experienced fighting him with him, but we know she's skilled enough herself to, for her opinions on matter. That's always a fun duel to revisit. I think we'll always look back on that one fondly. So everything goes down, and uh, Brienne eventually heads off to bed herself, and then she eventually abandons. She walks out in the middle of the night. Now, I think we should note, she doesn't abandon the pair of Sir Edifer and Sir Creighton originally. Like, she could have just done that on the road, but no, she waits until they are in the inn and safe, and they have something to go forward with. Because that's just the kind of person she is. Now for her personally, well we have this ending paragraph that's very strong in terms of evoking the hero image of going out and rescuing the princess in this land of darkness. Brienne focuses in on her oath, on Jamie, on Catelyn, and most importantly on Sansa, 
the innocent who needs a true knight like we said at the beginning so what what is there to do but just go off set off to deliver Brienne is going to keep going no matter what no matter how dark it is I think that's the point of this opening chapter as heard let's move on to the second half of our podcast today and we're going to go with Samuel 1 so we're back with our first previous POV as well as we already know Cersei and Brienne this is the first POV we've had before everything up to this point has been new we also get our one brief glimpse of the North and of John in this entire book which is very strange given how fundamental that area is to the story both Winterfell and the Wall now okay in Storm we didn't get much Winterfell we just had Bran out in the north and in Clash we didn't get the Wall we just had John up on the ranging but still we had tons of Castle Black at the end of Storm of Swords and now this is it this one chapter so that's very strange this and Sam's next chapter and the most northerly will be in this book by far Bravos is the next up and that's equivalent to the neck, the top of the veil. So we're really not used to that kind of geographic limitations. Now the big thing about this chapter, the one thing that everyone really remembers it for, is that we see it twice. Yeah, when Dance comes along and we see John, not obviously not all this chapter, but a lot of the scenes overlap. We get it from Sam's POV and we get it from John's POV. And that's pretty much unique in the entire series. We never see anything else twice that I can think of the top of my head. And so it's very interesting writing exercise for George, I think he likes that kind of thing. So this chapter, we start in the library, and it's the last time we go down there for now, so that's a shame. Always tough to say goodbye to these beloved libraries and the secrets they may hold. Consider that last time we started off in the library, we ended up going off in the Great Ranging, but now John gets to stay home, Sam, he's soon to find out, is off again. In Storm, Sam started off with one more step. In this early pages, it's one more book. I think he knows which one he prefers. And I think it's also a good instance of George definitely knowing his audience. Yes, just one more page, just one more book. Hmm. And also that last time we were in the library, it was John and Sam together. And they were speaking of it being smart to be afraid before the ranging. So a lot of parallels here. Because John doesn't want Sam to act afraid. That's being the key. And especially after everything that they've both been through. Sam especially. Now we're going to come to that conversation later on. But it's just interesting, the library functioning so highly in both these instances when John and Sam last time we saw them in the library at Clash are very very different John and Sam to this chapter and just while we're talking of John and how different he is Sam right here at the beginning he can't bear to kill a mouse even to save his beloved books whereas John has lost the freedom for such choices he has to be harsh with his friend and Sam and everyone else too but we'll come to that before that we have the opening of Sam rubbing his eyes and it's incredibly similar to a quote about Melisandre in her chapter opening where she's also rubbing her eyes very very similar writing I didn't write the quote down but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about there's a hint of a connection between these two when they met in Storm of Swords and I grow more and more convinced that they will be important to each other again at some point in the future they kind of feel similar roles even though they're basically opposites as people they're two very different bringers of knowledge and tricks to help the big name sword wielders in the war to come. Whether that's John, whether it's Stannis, it might be both, but you can see what I mean. And before we leave the library and get to the main chunk of the chapter, there's a few more notes. There's one about Eamon loving the books, but he's obviously lost the ability to read them, which is incredibly sad to think about. But I think it links quite well into what Brienne was thinking about in her last chapter, about Jamie's hand being taken away from him and how you shouldn't uh, depaw a... Uh, or declaw a lion as she puts it and that's very much what we can feel with Eamon how 
terrible that must be to have that ability taken away. The other thing that's a shame and is really kind of melancholy is that Sam is almost building a plan to look after this library. He thinks he's going to bring a cushion next time. He's going to save all these books and he's not going to get the opportunity to fulfil those ideas. And the library, as far as we know, seemingly basically becomes forgotten after Sam goes through. Again, that's real sad. But while he's reading through these books, we get the first of many dragon hints in this chapter. Sam starts wondering about Silverwing. John will wonder about Melisandre and her waking of sleeping dragons. John will also say that Mance is no more royal than he. Hmm. Pretty heavy on the old uh, hidden dragon at the wall hints in this chapter. They're going to come at multiple points through our reading. When Sam does drag himself out of the library finally, he runs into his old chums, who we last saw enjoying a drink on top of the wall and basically celebrating their seeming victory and getting John elected. But unfortunately, the celebrations have worn off and now it's back to reality. And well, we can have it with this quote. He's Lord Snow for true now. Too bloody highborn for the likes of us. Yes, it's the sign of things to come, with John eventually sending his friends away. And, well, you have to get the sense that that wouldn't have happened if Sam had been around. He would have talked John out of it, probably. But that's still far in the future. Obviously, we're getting the first instance of that with Sam here in this chapter. And we're going to get much more of John when we get to dance. But the seeds are all being set here of killing the boy and distancing himself from Pip and Gren and his friends. And though I can see the logic... Mm, it's tough. He also has difficulty in this chapter in swallowing stark feelings with the the letter that he's supposedly writing to King Tommen. We'll discuss that in a second as well. But he do, which he does in the end because it's better for the watch, which is his life now. But it's a tantalising little glimpse of John being a really proactive law commander and getting on with preparing the wall for what's coming, no matter the personal cost. They also talk about him switching to archery now and we're getting the switchback stair rebuilt. So yeah, things are happening here at the wall, but unfortunately for us, we're going to have to wait to get the full experience of such. So while that is all kind of doom and gloom, we do at least get a f one fleeting instance of some good old Pip and Grin comedy, which we're not going to get that much more of, unfortunately. So enjoy it. I'm sure you know to which I refer. Now, while John is promoting archery, he's also spending a lot of time on his swordplay. That's pointed out because he wants to improve. He knows what's coming. He knows he needs to be the best. He needs to be able to protect his people and even without that we know how important it was for him in the first place his dueling and his swordsmanship that's just part of who john is even when he first joined the watch still is even more important now later on we're going to have john looking at longclaw and really describing it in depth so last chapter we had brienne looking at oathkeeper and both of them echo sentiments about a sword only being as good as who wields it although john approaches from the other angle the opposite angle to brienne with all this talk of swords Sam wonders about him being a shield because he's not a swordsman. How can he be a shield if he's not a swordsman? Well, that's fitting because this is already a chapter about different types of shields. We're going to talk about paper shields in a moment. And Sam, he has to realise that he has worth to the watch, even if it's a different type, even if it's his knowledge that is going to shield humanity, not his swordplay. That's what John is trying to get and make him realise. On his little trip, Sam also notes that the King's Tower has a king in it again for the first time since, well, it'd have to be Jaehaerys the first, you would think. But then again, John was still on it not so long ago, so who knows. Next big part of this chapter is Gilly. She comes up next, and here we don't know about the life-changing, soul-tearing news-slash-command that she's just had from John. We're not going to find that out until halfway through the book, so even at the end of this chapter, we can only assume she's upset because she's being sent away possibly and obviously when we actually come to john one i think it's john one in dance dragons we'll see the whole conversation 
play out as a whole and how harsh John has to be and, and how terrible it is for Gilly. So the emotional weight is going to only increase after we've read that bit. So for a reread, we're already here. We already have that emotional weight. I think that's the key part of having to see this twice, even though we actually see the conversation between Sam and John twice, not John and Gilly. It's, it's just that fact being hammered into us, not once, but twice. Everything Gilly says here hurts so much more when you know the context. And we're hurt for Sam also when he finds out. We're hurt for John having to command this type of thing to try and help everyone. Although we should note this business of swapping baby identities and taking them far away is very neddish of him. And of course, we feel for Gilly. She's already completed such major, major feats. Ones that she really had no business even dreaming of, let alone doing. And all of it just comes to this, this horrible moment for her. That's terrible. Yet, as we find out later... Even this she manages to get through somehow. I think Gilly's strength is not nearly discussed enough for this book. The way she carries this burden and and somehow gets on with it and can bring herself to care for this other child and not not just go crazy and start scratching people's eyes out. I don't know how she does it, but somehow she does. And just consider that her child originally should have been sacrificed for evil. Somehow she got out of all that, she got himself, she marched through the cold and through the dead and got over the wall and everything else, only for her to have to sacrifice him for good instead. So now we come to what this chapter really is about, the meeting between Sam and John. And the first thing I'm going to mention is the title of the book that Sam is carrying. He mentions it here. It is Dragonkin, sounds like Skyrim, Dragonkin, being a history of House Targaryen from exile to apotheosis. I don't know if that's the word, but that's what I'm going to say. With consideration of the life and death of dragons. Quite a mouthful. So if you're like me and didn't know what apotheosis meant, well, don't worry, because I looked it up. It means becoming a god. So is that Aegon the First? I don't know if that makes sense. Or some connection to Baelor, maybe? I don't know. It's a hell of a title. What I do know is we get a ghost sighting. Ghost. Ghost is here. And you remember how much we enjoyed He's coming back at the end of Storm of Swords. Well, here he is, just chilling out with John behind the armory. Brilliant. It's our lone sighting of a direwolf in this book, I think. Okay, we might get Nymeria dreams. I'm not sure if we do actually get them in this book or not, but it, for being awake and being present, this is the one direwolf we see for the whole book. So, we, I mean, we've talked enough about different signs that this is a new era for Song of Ice and Fire, and this is one of them because, again, like the Starks, the direwolves are pretty key fundamental parts of the Song of Ice and Fire, and suddenly they ain't around. We get them for like a page. While we're talking about animals, the ravens also getting harder to ignore. He says blood this time, which is important for a chapter with this subject matter, considering John's end goal with switching the babies. He also seems to be reading the book alongside Sam. Now that's very interesting, I like that. If we join it with Dance, we know the ravens have left cold hands in high numbers when he's walking along with Bran, and we actually get to meet the Free-Eyed Raven, who is very clearly Blood Raven. I've just read that chapter on my personal read, and I forget how, yeah, it is laid right out there. That's definitely Blood Raven sat in the tree. So I wonder if this is the best chapter for feast-dance comparisons. Not only do we get to see the chapter, obviously, in both books, but just the, the extras as well. So the first part of the conversation between these two is about this paper shield with the Lannisters and John not wanting to go for it basically because he's still clinging on to his old role it's john snow john stark the one he could have been he doesn't want to do that because he remembers what the lasters were like when he first met them he obviously remembers everything that's 
gone down between the two families since, but that's conflicting with his oaths and what he's actually supposed to be doing, like we spoke about in the Brienne chapter. Now, luckily, Sam is on hand to give good advice on the paper shield issue, which I won't go through all of it with you now, because basically it ends up with John conceding. So and it's just a shame that John doesn't keep Sam around, because he would have been much use going forward in situations like this. But there we go, last alarms, I suppose. We also have Sam remembering that he's keeping his word on Bran, tough as that is. And again, oaths. We're talking oaths. Next to Brienne's chapter, and she's she's the big oath keeper, isn't she? Not just sword alone. So hmm. it also relates back to Sam's question on lies for good causes. He's doing it to John. He doesn't realise until later that John has done the same to him and Gilly. Lies for good causes. It's death and destruction I want to bring down on House Lannister, not scorn. Yeah, that, I think that sums up John's feelings here. And eventually, he is going to give in to that scorn, his family desires. And it will cost him, not specifically to House Lannister, but all of their allies. And yeah, we know it's going to cost him. But again, we're going to have to wait for that quite a while. There's also some mention about Stannis and that whole storyline, that whole plot not going forward, as we would have hoped. The North is not rallying to Stannis. That's going to relate into Davos early on and White Harbour and everything. That's something else we've got to wait for, but we get the hints here that, yeah, it's not as easy as Stannis would have hoped. And just while we're talking of Stannis as well, John, he has some rather blunt questions for Sam about the others that we're going to come to in a minute, but the, just the way he says them makes him sound more and more like Stannis. So I wonder how much time they've been spending together or they did, were spending together. I have a few little notes for you here. Let's go through them quickly. Here's one quote for you. I would sooner take off Mance's head myself. He was a man of the Night's Watch once. By rights, his life belongs to us. So, well, he doesn't get to do that, but he is going to take Janos Slints instead, not too far in the future from when this chapter is. There's also the first mention of ice spiders, I believe, here in this conversation with John. Two in one chapter, in fact, because the other one is going to come and dance. It's actually the same dialogue. So this is our lone uh, mention of ice spiders, which spawns a whole movement. I think it is, anyway. If, if it isn't, it's the first since Old Nan, probably, in Game of Thrones, or maybe Early Clash. So I could well be wrong. And there's also just a little bit of talk about really, really old books, which is just tantalising. We, I want to get on, bite those old books. I want them, I want them so bad, but we're going to have to wait. Unfortunately, let's get to some of these blunt questions that uh, John is asking. Here's a quote: Did you find out who the others are? Where they come from? What they want? Now, that's actually not all that blunt, considering, but it is important because this is the first time anyone has really posed these thoughts at all, with any seriousness, at least. That's why John is so key as Lord Commander. We spoke about it in Storm. He's the one who's the best of both worlds. He knows about true threat. He's the one in the position to do something about it. If Janos Slint had been elected, he'd be just shrugging off their existence at all. Whereas John is not only considering them an, an, as an enemy, but who they might be beneath that. If John's the first to question, I wonder if that means he'll be the first to get an answer. Gonna have to wait. It turns out all this talk of paper shields and what Stannis is up to and old books is more just a delay for the actual purpose of this conversation, Sam being sent south to become a maester. So we really had a whole chapter off of maester in, in Brienne's chapter, but now it's coming back, and coming back with force. We have some of the negative connotations that we got in the beginning chapter, as we find out Sam doesn't want to be a maester. Hmm, now that's a puzzle, that's a surprise. From everything we know of Sam, a maester is the ideal role for him, and if we thought John would eventually replace Dior, we can assume Sam would have eventually replaced Aemon. That's just how it looked to be. But then we find out why. Yes, we have a very uncomfortable, terrible passage with Sam remembering some more of his childhood at the hands of the evil Randall Tarly. Evil. 
version of way of putting it. We, we would have thought we'd hate Randall enough, but clearly not. This just adds on to it. Sam's memories, these instances of being chained to the wall, it's just wildly barbaric, pure torture. So it's no wonder that Sam has turned out the way he has. We already had enough evidence for that, for hating Randall, like I say, but even more now. And you would, you'd think Randall might have been happy about the maester idea way back when. Sam makes something of himself. It's something accepted that many big houses do, even the Targaryens. And it gets him out of the way so Dickon, the big strong lad that Randall supposedly prefers, can inherit. So well, it's, everybody wins. Well, obviously not, because we instead discover that success is nothing to do with Randall's criteria. It is literally about how manly you can be. Physical strength and nothing else. Just horrible uh, macho-ism everywhere. And there's also that hints about Randall being unhappy about serving the Tyrells because they were once stewards. So if he thinks anyone in a life of servitude is uh, not worth thinking about, well, that fits into the uh, friends in the reach theories, doesn't it? Yeah. But unfortunately, as much as Sam doesn't like the idea, he is going. And I do love the combination of John and Sam's arc, especially that big order, the command from John about Sam not being allowed to think of himself as not brave anymore, because it's just not true. From the beginning, John has gently guided and nudged Sam along in order to make him a better person. But like we say, now he's full on ordering, again, to help his friend. And John, giving due to all Sam's accomplishments, even if Sam doesn't himself, is just good reading. Now, I understand John's logic of needing a maester. Again, connections to the themes of the prologue. But he also understands that he needs every man now, so that makes this decision a little more confusing. We can see John is more focused on the martial aspects of the war than any other, but you know Sam can provide a lot of good up on the wall as a thinker, a researcher, a de facto maester like Clydus. Perhaps John is just unaware of how long it actually takes to become a maester. It's not exactly a career path he would have spent a lot of time thinking about in his childhood. But then we also really know it's just a vehicle of getting Eamon and Mance's child away, of gifting Gilly with someone who might make her happy on this terrible, terrible journey he's sending on. And also gifting Sam a career he would like, some time with the woman he likes, and probably saving his life, because again, John's no John knows what is coming, and he knows Sam isn't a fighter. He wasn't there for all those battles. Now I'm not saying Sam would have died in any of those, but it could have been dodgy. In that way, I suppose, as confusing as it is, we could look at this as one of the last acts of John prioritizing a friend over his wall duties before he really starts killing the boy. Now to end here, let's talk a little bit about Eamon, and here's a quote from him. There's an inn on an island in the Honeywine, where I used to go when I was a young novice. It will be pleasant to sit there once again, sipping cider. This is just one of a thousand tragedies we know of Eamon never making it back to the Honeywine and what we can assume is the Quillen Tankard. But also it just provides us a bit of a time warp. We've just had examples of young students doing exactly this. So that allows us to travel back, imagine a young Eamon doing exactly the same. Similarly, we can imagine these young students now as old maesters. Not as old as Eamon, I doubt, but still old. You can just see the two ends of similar career paths or life paths. Eamon warns John about the Jade Compendium. Now, we know later that the passage is about the sword, Stannis' sword, not being warm and only bright, like Bringer we're talking about. Same as the conversation he had with Sam at the end of the storm. It's one of those occasions where it would have been a whole lot easier to just tell John outright, but I guess it's just too much of a teacher within Eamon to do so. But he's also just trying to impart the importance of knowledge for the war. This isn't going to be one with swords or bows alone. You need books, John. You need thinking. And unfortunately, both of your best thinkers are walking out the door. I think Eamon knows that. So let's just hope Sam gets back there. While we're talking about leaving and, and getting back, let's close with 
the snowflakes and the hair comment. Yeah, we all know that one. We had a reminder of it in Storm of Swords when John was remembering his Winterfell childhood prior to the vote, and it comes back now. And this is it's a callback to the feeling of this being a permanent goodbye. Permanent so far in the story, they don't see each other just yet. But for all they know, for all John knows, this is it. It's a long, perilous way down south. It's going to take a long way for him to come back up. And John doesn't know if he's still going to be around because lets his army of the dead come in. So who who knows? It really hits John hard because that's what happened when he saw Rob. And that was the last time. Now Rob was his best friend then. Sam is his best friend now. Tough. Tough for John. Tough for Sam. And I'm still going to say real tough for Gilly. We should talk about her much more often. But we'll leave the chapter there and move on to our last one of the day. It is Aya 1. As much as we like Sam... He is a very new POV in comparison to Aya, so this is really going back to our roots here. We've had five chapters of Sam to this point, but we've had 28 Aya chapters to get comfortable with. So this is someone we really know and we've really missed. Except she's in a completely new situation, one we aren't used to at all. This is not the Aya that we knew before. It's one of freedom, relatively, that's the clear thing. We've seen her with Yorin, at Harrenhal, with the Brotherhood, and then with Sandor. She's normally starving, half the time she's on the run, Always in the middle of a blazing war and danger around every corner. Not so much now. Okay, danger, still present, sure, but not the same. And definitely not the horribleness that she experienced before. Now she's going to be in a city completely removed from said war. One of its own society, hierarchy, and many, many different cultural elements that she's never seen before. And it's quite unlike anything we've seen before as well. Ironically, the closest so far is probably Old Town. Now, the structure of Bravos, the makeup as it's described, makes people normally think that it's like Venice because of all the canals. But a lot of people say it's actually more like Amsterdam. That's due to a myriad of reasons, the, the tall houses, other stuff that I won't bore you with. Now, I'm lucky enough to have been to both Amsterdam and Venice. I can say I put my vote to Amsterdam. I think people are correct there. Either way, whatever is supposedly based on, it's a big intro. Bravos is going to be very important to the storyline of this book going forward in wins and dream as well, especially if our prologue theories turn out to be correct. And we know it has a big place in history also, so it's worth considering. The other thing we should consider is that this is the first time we visit one of the three cities, save for the very brief glimpse we got all the way back in Danny 1 of Game of Thrones in Pentos. And they're really going to enter the focus of the saga now, especially in Dance. Even more importantly, this is the first time we visit Essos at all in someone other than Danny's POV. Soon enough, we'll have Tyrion, Victarion, Griff, Quentin, and Barristan, and Sam in this book as well, but it's Aya who kicks off the trend, safe of Daenerys, and gets us going on the western coast of Essos. It's also the first civilization that Aya's been around since she escaped the Red Keep and King's Landing. That didn't go well, but Bravos clearly has its stuff together way, way more than King's Landing ever has. So that provides us with a good opportunity to see how Aya's changed since then, and just the differences in these two cities. So with all that in mind, it's a big world-building chapter, clearly. It's just as new as Old Town was, and has far more to point out, if we're being honest. Some of it's going to be very important to the plot going forward, some of it just great background world-building. But thanks to Fire and Blood, and others doing their theory crafting, we have even more connections and guesses to make through ancient and modern history both when it comes to Bravos. And just one more note here before we get to the text, just two more Aya chats after this, this is all we get. Just four total going forward. Two more in dance, two more here. Very, very strange. So George is throwing us a bone early, sure, but wow, that's really going to take some getting used to for us, isn't it? Okay, let's get on with the text. 
So we open with Aya on the ship that we saw her boarding, the end of Storm Sword, the Titan's daughter. She's still on her journey, still crossing the narrow sea, coming to the end of her journey. And the beginning focus is very much on this star of home, which is quite good for Aya's themes because much like Sansa, also at the end of Storm, home has always been the target for both sisters, really. Indirectly, perhaps, for Aya, because she's been heading for Riverrun first, but ever since Eddard's fall, both of them have been trying to get back home, and both ended up on a ship they thought might help them out. Unfortunately, it's a no on both counts. Sansa has been redirected through trickery, Aya just by lack of choice, she just can't get home. Now, she's returning to someone's home, but it's not hers. This ship is called the Titan's Daughter, I'm about to go past the Titan, but okay, one daughter is coming home, but unfortunately it's not Aya. And that fact forces her to reflect on the idea that home is nowhere now, that she doesn't really have one. She's just being dragged from place to place, and this is just the next place on the list. But before she was dragged, now she's actually going herself, so she at least gets to enjoy the freedom that we mentioned a second ago. It's not the freedom she specifically wants, the freedom to go home, but freedom's better than being dragged, isn't it? Same for Sansa, unfortunately. She's going to kind of get the idea of freedom, but we know really she's still kind of a prisoner. It's ironic, really, that Bran, who was the last one to actually be at Winterfell, is the one sibling who has actively tried to get further away rather than return like his sisters. Still, we know from Storm of Swords that Arya really wanted to get up to the wall to be with Jon for her bypass home because he's really the only option left. And I think that's one of the more common wishes for any A Song of Ice and Fire fan. I'm not sure there could be a more endearing reunion at this point in the series. I, I couldn't put anyone else above. Arya and Jon would be top of my list for reunions. But feel free to correct me if you have a better suggestion. It's bigger last alarms, obviously, for what could have been if I had reached the wall. Huge amounts of joy, of course, if the two actually got to see each other. But importantly for the plot, John would know that the Boltons have a fake eye. That changes everything, everything to, that happens at the end of the dance, doesn't it? Assumedly, he'd try and get that information to Stannis and the other Northern Lords, perhaps. But who's to say he'd be leaved? And, and then what happens? Would John allow Aya to stay on the wall, given what he knows is coming and the political state of the watch at that time? But then again, what, where else can he send her? Where is safe? Really, not many places. I have a feeling she would prove herself more than useful anyway. And we could have a meeting with Melisandre. She'd probably even get on well with the wildlings. Endless possibilities, really. So, yeah, a big alas alarms. Even if she didn't get there, outside chance on the way, she gets blown to Skagos and meets Rickon or Davos instead, but no, that's not what we have. We have Aya coming to Bravos. Here's the first quote for the chapter. I don't need any friends, so long as I have needle. So that's a cool line, but a sad line. Aya is a survivor, first and foremost, and this situation, like we said, is way better than 90% of those she's been in recently, ever since she left King's Landing. So she's trying to make the best of it, thinking about Jacqueline and even Sirio being from this city, already hinting at the importance of the unknown ways of the world. And those two are certainly fan favourites and more two of the more interesting side characters. So if we can find out more about them and their history, we're all in for it. But even with that idea, with that notion, she still doubles down on not needing anyone. She's fine alone. She's in control. All she needs is her beloved sword. It's important to focus on that now because she's going to be giving it up later on. So we, we need to highlight Needle straight away. Then again, the other way is to see it as something sad. It's sad to see a young girl cast off humanity in such a way only put true value, true friendship in a weapon. And for all that confidence, Aya is still at something of a loose end. This boat journey is going to be finishing soon, and then what? Her only previous goal was to get to John. That's not possible, so what else is she to do? And she can't come up with an answer or a wish for this star because she has no idea what she wants and what she's walking into. What is this place that they're about to dock in? Instead, she relies on what has always been her greatest strength, 
being able to talk with people of all backgrounds and stations. She talks to the crew, she learns from them, she picks up little tidbits. Considering how much of that she's going to be doing later on in the city, pretty important. And again, very different from King's Landing Isle, where she really struggled initially with that side of things. She thinks back to tales of Old Nan when they start thinking about the Titan, and that leads to a rabbit hole including Lewin and Sansa being at Winterfell until Aya physically stops herself, or mentally stops herself. It's the second time in two pages she started thinking of home, and the second time that she stopped herself short and made herself remember that they are all gone. She's really hammering that point into herself. She's now even quantifying it with all men must die, because looking at it as destined and unavoidable perhaps lessens the pain. Not thinking about it at all is even better for that, but even if she won't think of them, she and we both know she's going to continue feeling them, feeling that loss, even if she puts it to the back of her mind for now. And even if Aya does attempt to give up herself and her painful past in the coming chapters, the end sentence of this chapter and future events also tell us that she never lets go, much the same as Sansa again. Things might get pushed to the background, but they're always there. You can't ever get rid of that starkness. Next quote here, and Salty isn't highborn either. So we're already playing with the importance of names and identities, being someone changing your whole history, etc. It's going to be big for this faceless men arc that we've got coming. Lots of names to come from Aya, lots of names she's already had. And so it's not a surprise that she's ready to leave Aya Stark behind. Look at what she's been through, we can't blame her. And she's already perfecting this talent of not letting details give her away. She doesn't ask about a godswood on the old gods because Salty wouldn't know. But again, that thought only leads her back down the rabbit hole of reminding herself that all her family is dead. So we really get this sense of melancholy and pain. And we have to remember that the Red Wedding isn't that long ago for her, even if it is for us narratively. The pain is still very fresh. She's still incredibly, incredibly wounded about all this. So how best to deal with all this pain? Well, the solution she comes up with is her beloved list. But even that is much changed, and she's getting further and further from those names with every passing minute, so it's getting harder to lean on those now. Next up, we get a great description of the Titan, and Aya not realising its size, or that it was going to make a huge noise, is pretty descriptive of her arriving in Bravos full stop. She doesn't know what to expect. This is all new, but she's already getting intrigued. Now, I love the Titan, personally. I wrote an entire short story because of the, the Titan. The Tumble Titan, if any of you are interested. You, I'm sure you know where to find it by now. But anyway, for, back to Aya instead of myself. She makes herself brave as they pass through. She's relying on herself again. This is a new city, new sounds, new massive statue, but Aya is a strong wolf and she will get through it. And once we pass the Titan, we get on to Bravos itself, and even more cool descriptions. Lots of world building. All the islands and the fact there's no walls and all this stuff that's just cool for us nerds to soak up and clearly Aya has never seen any place like this and neither has the reader like we said at the beginning we'll get more and more of these passages through the chapter as we go so in that sense I guess you could say this is a travel loggy chapter sure okay especially for first time readers who don't know which of these features are going to turn out to be important or that they can disregard and in fairness quite a few have already been left by the wayside for now but I don't think this is as slow as a travelogue chapter. I think this is just soak it all in. I think we enjoy this. As we go further in, again, more world building, more city describing. We have the tall houses. I said about, that's why a lot of people think of Amsterdam. Yes, I certainly do. And we also get some important tidbits in there for later, such as the different harbours or the fact that everything is stone and there are no trees. Daenerys theorists like that note, I know. She also echoes our own thoughts about this place completely outdoing King's Landing already much as the Westerosi might want to lord their capital. Is this some of George's best world-building work? Yes, I would say it is. 
makes it incredibly interesting. A lot of us would want to visit, I think. Even with quick notes about broad canals and the differently decorated bridges, it's very, very intriguing and most definitely a setting of possibilities. This just seems like a place where there could be a lot going on underneath the surface and we want to we want to explore it. I especially want to just point out the Sweetwater River because I'd personally forgotten that. That's pretty huge, the system they've got of bringing fresh water down into the into the city. Again, just on another level to the places we've been before. As we go further, we get descriptions of the Isle of Gods and all the different temples. There's mention of the Sea Lords too, so we're keeping that Syria connection that might be important later. And Aya is really only able to connect with the Red Priests at the moment, but she's having her eyes open that there are hundreds of gods all over the world that she's never even heard of. And this is a girl, a young girl, who has travelled around, she has been educated, and has more life experience at 10 or wherever she is than most people do in their whole lifetime. Yet she still has no idea about the majority of the world. So again, there's just this opening of possibilities for both her and us. Let's refocus on the boat for a moment. We've got Captain Terrace, and he's clearly eager to not have too much involvement with the faceless men. He's fulfilled his duty of getting Aya here, and he's hoping that's enough to just keep him in the good books, but he doesn't want to get too close. Which is a shame for Aya, because it's rare for her to stumble across any situation she might actually like or want to stay in, and every time she does, it gets taken away from her, which is the same here. She doesn't even get to say goodbye to her friend, which is unfortunately another common occurrence for her. So that was goodbye to the main boat, now she's been in the little uh, dinghy, I guess, with Yorko, and he has this goodbye as well. You know my name, said Yorko from the boat. Yorko Terrace, Ballo de Horace. That's interesting. I wonder if there's significance to someone's name in, in Bravos or in dealing with the faceless men, because that phrase isn't used again of, of having to say you know someone's name before saying Vela de Harris. Pretty apt for Aya, though, for whom names are so important. Or, well, you could even say Fion. <laughs> He's a bit like this, you know your name. I wonder if that will come back. Now, when it comes to actually disembarking from the boat and facing this huge city that she has no clue about, Aya immediately discards the salty identity for her strong wolf persona, all the better to face what is in front of her. We're already getting really good at switching masks, depending on the situation. What I'm trying to tell you is, Aya has played Majora's Mask from the Zelda series, that's what I'm thinking. And again, clear connections to what's going to be going on later for Aya and her identity. Let's quote here as we approach the ending of the chapter. The doors are watching me. Yes, we have another weirwood door. Weirwood mixed with ebony and complete with a moon. Makes me think of the moon door. I'm sure you're the same. As we've said a thousand times, if Bran or someone else can ever figure out how to watch through this kind of weirwood, the unconnected weirwood that's been fashioned into something else, well, this feels like it'd be a pretty damn important location to be able to see out of. Now, the door itself opens when Aya says Valamogulis. So does, does it open for that password specifically? Is it a coincidence? Is it because Aya has the Faceless Men coin? Don't know, but it definitely puts me in mind of the Black Gate in terms of uh, needing something specific to pass through. So she goes inside, and it's a pretty creepy place to find herself in, but also a great link to the rest of Essos and to some of Danny's early journeys, because we see the Goat of Kohor, we see a Dothraki horse, etc, etc. I'm sure there's more, hopefully I haven't got that wrong. Old Town might have been the gateway to the rest of the world, but now we're really in the rest of the world. This is kind of the centre, because to be fair... If we want to look at a map of the known world in terms of how far we've gone in terms of readers, so from Calf, that's the, the most southerly easterly, to the Frostfangs above the wall, that's the most northerly-ish we've been, Bravos is basically along the middle of the line between them. So I'm going to say this is the middle of Planetos for us, for the story. 
Ira comes along to the pool and those drinking the water. So for first-time readers, and for re-readers to a certain extent, that's just damn confusing. We've got no idea what's going on. It all comes pretty quickly. We don't really get time to reflect or wonder what's happening here. All we know is it's dark and creepy, and yet another thing Aya shouldn't have to be seeing for her age. Although it is pretty heartwarming when she helps the man drink, because she just wants to help people. Next we come to the kindly man and the waif. For now, we've got no reason to really suspect the waif or, or anything else, but the kindly man is different. He knows her name's all fake, and she already, like we said earlier, she already has a whole bunch to list off, and he knows which one is true. Pretty creepy. Oh, and on top of that, he has a skull face with a worm in it. But this is Aya, and she's in her brave wolf persona. She's got the wolf mask on. So brave that she tries to eat the worm and prove she belongs. And it clearly works. I think this more than anything proves there is no one quite like Aya. So she's accepted in, and an entirely new avenue of her life begins. One which we still do not know the ending to. Guess it's going to come fast and fit. We do have four more chapters in Bravos for Aya, but I don't think they give us too much clues of where she's going. But then we also have the Mercy uh, pre-release chapter, and yeah, lots of theories flying left, right and centre. But for there, I think we will leave it for today. The most important thing is Aya has found a direction. She was looking for home earlier, and I would struggle to call the House of Black and White a home for anyone, but it's what is going to serve Aya that purpose for at least going forward for the rest of the story as we have it. I think the most unfortunate thing is this is the thing that's going to take some getting used to. We have to wait 18 chapters until the next Aya. Aya 2. Yeah, it's just rough. To be honest, we have the three chapters that come in Aya are pretty evenly spaced out. So we have this one, the next is the 22nd chapter, and her last, Cut of the Canals, is chapter number 34. So so pretty evenly spread, and yeah, this sucks for us Aya fans, of which I definitely am one, and we're going to have to wait for so long. But... We will discuss that when we come to it, I suppose. Let me tell you about what is coming next week on part three. We will have Cersei 2. We're already back in that mind because her chapters are just going to be so frequent. Then we get Jamie 1. That is going to kick off. Brienne 2, we're back there. And finally, Sansa 1, heading to the Eyrie. Much like we have today, we finish with Stark Sister today. We're going to finish with one next week too. So we hope you'll join us there. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Please consider looking back on those resources i mentioned at the beginning because you really should be and other than that i thank you for coming and joining we shall see you next time